Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Kia ora everyone and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Carolyn Keeve from Caramad Capital, which is a specialized healthcare venture capital fund based in New Zealand. And we have a really interesting conversation, so we're going to get straight into it. If you enjoy this, then you might want to check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog. The point of Seeds is to try to record interesting conversations with inspiring people. Now let's get straight into this conversation with Carolyn. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Caroline Keeve from Caramad Capital. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation because I know what you're doing with Caramed Capital is actually quite innovative and quite unique, and you have a really specific focus. So I really want to uncover that and find out a bit about more of that initiative. But on Seeds, what I'd love to do is go back in time as well and find out about the person and a little bit about their history. So I'm wondering if we could jump in the time machine over here and you could tell us a little bit about what life was like for you even in your early childhood, like when you were four or five years old, what was life like for you? Where were you living? Okay, so uh, if we go back in time, I actually was born in Malaysia and um, moved to New Zealand when I uh, to come to university, actually do seventh form and come to university. So I moved to New Zealand when I was 17 uh, without my family, really just came to New Zealand to um, study and so I went uh, I did a law degree and a finance degree uh, at the University of Auckland and then started my career as a mergers and acquisitions private equity and venture capital lawyer in two of New Zealand's uh, biggest law firms and then from there actually moved in-house to work at Fisher and Paykel Healthcare. Um, oh and interesting. Yeah, and had um, a wonderful decade with Fisher and Paykel Healthcare, where um, that company, Fisher and Paykel, at that time, it just separated from Fisher and Paykel Appliances, and uh, it was interesting because nobody—I mean, not like today because of COVID and Fisher and Paykel providing one of the two, um, you know, therapies for for COVID. Um, at that time, people still uh, associated Fisher and Paykel with an appliance company, so it was very interesting. Uh, going when you tell people you work for Fisher and Paykel Healthcare, people complain about their uh, washing machine or their fridge, uh, you know, fridge and the butter conditioner and things like that, you know. But you know, obviously, Fisher and Paykel Healthcare is a healthcare company. I was there in the early days, and um, during my 11 years, they saw that company quadruple in size. I was head of legal globally for them, but uh, effectively, as a Kiwi company, we were doing great things globally. Um, cool. in terms of the impact. And of course, you can see the impact now with COVID and how, uh, you know, a small little New Zealand company is providing one of one of the key therapies really uh, for, for um, COVID really. Um, well, I can tell that we're going to have a lot in common because that's kind of a similar career path to me because I became a mergers and acquisitions lawyer as well, working for law firms and things. Can we just go back before we talk about Fisher and Paykel and that, that part? I'm just curious about, your time you know before you came to New Zealand what was it like when you were growing up you know paint the picture for us were you in a big city or a little city or um yeah which part of Malaysia were you in I was living outside of Kuala Lumpur in a small little fishing village called Klang um it was uh, it wasn't really a village but it was really quite a small town um, you know, and, and that, that was the kind of community that we grew up in. And, and to be honest, it was very third world. And um, coming to New Zealand was actually an opportunity. Uh, and, and as an immigrant, that opportunity, um, you know, I think, you know, my children would take a lot of what they have for granted. But for us, it was, uh, don't want to sound mean, but it was almost like we needed to work really hard and you know, um, to get out, to get out of that little town to actually create a better life for ourselves. And, and actually, wow. as a, an immigrant, um, you know, we, our work ethics different, we work harder because we know where we've come from. And, um, you know, what, what's valuable. And f- I mean, New Zealand is, is, I've lived in New Zealand longer than I've lived anywhere else. And New Zealand, mm. for me, 
is paradise. It's, you know, I think we take it for granted. You know, we can, you know, worry, you know, complain about how cold the winter is or whatever, you know, but the reality is it was paradise and it was a land of opportunity, really. I was given a huge amount of opportunity, you know, and, and all you had to do was work hard, work yeah. hard. And, you know, it, it was there for, for, for the taking. It still is really. And, and um, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't know how to instill that in my children because they're born in New Zealand. Um, you know, you don't want to tell the stories about, you know, when I was your age and, uh, you know, right. we, we do all that to our children. We say things like go to school with no shoes and that sort of thing. That It wasn't that bad, but it, it really is, you know, we, we do sometimes take for granted what, what we have now. I do too, to be honest, yeah. you know, and I've got to stop and remember where I've come from. Yeah. So tell me a little bit. I'm just really curious about this. Um, you know, like your parents, what, what was life like for them? And what, how did they, um, did they have the vision to say, right, we should send you to New Zealand? Or how did that come about? And I think as immigrants, because my parents, my grandparents came from China, and you know, uh, and my father's father got on a boat with nothing, and, right. and first sailed from China to go to Malaysia. And so every generation wants to create a better life for the next generation. You know, it's kind of generational what, what um, you know, what we do as immigrants, because, you know, they were immigrants too to Malaysia and then we're immigrants now to, to New Zealand. So I think it, it was always that whole work hard and don't take what you've got for granted, always with the vision of actually creating a better life and a better future for your children. Right. Um, and I, I think that experience, um, it's really quite hard to articulate. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'm doing it well enough, you know, to articulate as an immigrant, the, the you know, we, New Zealand's land of opportunity, you know, and, and, and you know, I mean, when I, when I and, and even in the law firms, when I joined a law firm, I knew I looked different. I knew I had a different background. And, but I also realized that it wasn't, going to be an easy road for me because of my background um, and never really took for granted but knew that I actually had to work a lot harder than everybody else because I, um, my family had no connections here you know right. my father didn't you know work in a corporate that was a client of one of the big law firms that I worked for you know so I had to actually build something and I've always had that purpose of building those connections for my children so that you know um, you know and you know so, so that they can have a better, better future. Yeah, it's interesting to me that as well, though, just the family legacy that your grandfather had been an immigrant, you know, leaving China and going to Malaysia. And then in a way, you're echoing his journey in some ways, going to an, another new country. And, and, you know, what you must have learned from that heritage or that background to then give you the drive to achieve and, and do what you do. The, and the other thing is also entrepreneurship and risk, because mm. if he came on a boat with nothing and built something and he built, he built, um, you know, he built substantial assets in, 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 in Malaysia, um, you know, and so, you know, and, and built businesses, but he came with nothing, you know, that, that whole entrepreneurship and risk that comes um, mm. as, as an immigrant, you know, you've just got nothing to lose. You've just, you see opportunities mm. now where other people may take it for granted or see it as normal you see opportunities yeah I'm just reminded of my own heritage my great-grandparents uh, on one side anyway came from Norway and at the time it was a very impoverished land you know they hadn't yeah. had all the oil and gas and things and they went to America with basically nothing kind of similar to what you're describing and started a new life and and you know had children and then um, but didn't speak the language you know arriving in a new place it's quite, I think you're right, it's hard to convey the legacy of what those people went through or did to then create a life for the next generation. And I'm just wondering for myself as well, the same question you've got, how do we convey that to our children so that they understand and are motivated to, to grasp the way that our ancestors did? Yeah, yeah. and I, I think you do that. For me, I think I do that by... Um, giving giving them a life of purpose you know you know and, and talking about purpose and meaning in, in in what you do 
mm. you know, and, and, and you tell stories, you know, like like what you do with your book. You tell stories, you know, mm. um, and and that's how that's how you pass it on. You hope they catch it, you know. A lot mm. of it is going to be caught, not taught, you know. So you hope that they catch that, you know. Um, yeah. Understand the privilege of choice, you know, uh, which which some people don't have, you know. You know, we have choice, you know. And I think sometimes when my children complain, I'm like, uh, oh, you know, I don't know whether I should do this or that. I'm like, but you have opportunities and you have choice, and that that is actually um, a privilege. Yeah, you know, that's almost a complaint of privilege. I said because the fact that you have options and you are trying to work out and weigh up your options means you've got choice. A lot of people don't. You know, my grandparents didn't have cho- as many choices as as we we have. You know, and um, my grandmother for you know we're talking about generations my grandmother was a very smart woman my my um you know father's mother and she never had an opportunity to go to university uh, i think that in, if she lived in today's day and age she would have done really well for herself but she learned how to read and write and it was unusual for someone of her generation to learn how to read and write, you know. Um, you know, and then she was actually, if you want to talk about family history, she was actually betrothed at a young age to my grandfather. And she married him. She was sent to live in another city um, to, uh, to marry a man she's never met. Wow. You know, and, 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 and that was just a genera- you know, two generations ago. And I tell those stories to my children and talk to them about the choice that, you know, the generations have created for them. Mm. The, the, you know, my grandmother never had that option. Yeah. And um, I think she would have um, done really well if she did, you know. So, mm-hmm. again, that, that itself is a privilege. And you, know, you just tell stories. Yeah, no, I love that. It comes up a lot in the podcast, as you can imagine, because I ask these sorts of questions. And the thing that strikes me is that we're not very far removed from the generation where there wasn't as much choice. Like I I interviewed Margaret Austin um, recently. So she's um, now about 80 or so. And she was telling me that her grandparents left school, you know, at age 11, 12. And that was just normal. That's what you did. And we just take it for granted, I think, sometimes that, well, of course, you're going to high school. And of course, you're going on to do some other thing. But it's only relatively recently that we even have that choice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And as women, I think, you know, we're still we're still fighting for more choices, I think, <laughs> you know, to be honest, really, with the diversity debate. Yeah. Know. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's touch on that if it comes up later. So when you arrived in New Zealand, what what was it like? You, you said you arrived for seventh form. So um, yep. that's kind of a, you know, it's an unusual stage of life to be in your, your teenage years and then arriving in a brand new country, climate. Um, yeah. How did that go? What was it like? It was it was really interesting and exciting, but you know, as I said, my whole goal in life was to work really hard to get out of the small town, and so. Um, but it was also very foreign. Uh, I, I always remember this, and this is quite funny. I always remember when we first I first came to New Zealand, and there's so many things in Kiwi slang that we take for granted. And I remember um, going out uh, with a group of people from church actually, and that I've met and. Uh, we went out for fish and chips and they said, um, you know, I'm going to shout. And I was right. like, well, what does that actually mean? You know, uh, yeah. I'm going to shout, you know? So, so I, I always remembered that. And I was like, wow, culture shock, you know, and, and must have been really awkward because I think back of that time in terms of, you know, as a teenager and, you know, just clothing and, and I mean, I, I spoke the language already, you know, so that was fine, but it was just the clothing and the language and, and all that, you know, it was, was a huge culture shock, but, you know, I kind of had a choice at that time. Um, I could go and find other Asian people to hang out with and feel comfortable and feel like it was home or I could integrate into society. Um, yeah. It was harder work, but I chose the latter because I said, I'm here to stay and this is my land and I'm going to adopt this and the culture. And so, you know, not, not trying to lose myself in, in all of it, but um, you know, that that's what I chose to do. And um, here I am more than you know, 30 years today at 30 years this year. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I think you're right. It does come back to the attitude that you bring. It sounds like you were very proactive in your attitude of what you were here to do as well. 
because I think it, it can be a temptation when you go to a new country to just assume that other people are going to welcome you in. And, you know, but it, it takes that attitude going, I need to get out. I need to go meet the people and, you know, be proactive with how I'm using my time. Yep. 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 Yeah. So, so now, now we're, we're kind of like Kiwis, but I call, I make the joke with my children. I say they're Chiwis, Chinese Kiwis. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's good. And have they have they gone back to Malaysia very much? Is that something that you've taken them back to say this is where I'm from? Or yes, yes, we have, and it's a culture shock for them. So you see, it's right. reverse now. You know, it's been a bit of a culture shock for them. And I did um, because my in-laws now live in Kuala Lumpur, and it's a nice city, and it's huge. It's it's kind of bigger than than here. You know, it's it's mm. different now. But then I take them to the small town that uh, I was brought up with, and they go yuck. <laughs> you know, it's actually really yuck. They're like, you, yuck, you know. And I said, well, you have to remember where you come from because I want you to know where the where your roots are, you know. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's fascinating. So just take us through then, um, was law always on your horizon? Is that something that you wanted to study? Or how did you get in that sort of, that stream of, of work? Just, just really always... Um, you know, I wanted to to do law and and finance. You know, that was always something that I I aspired to do. And I think it's also very Asian culture. You know, you either become a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. Just right. to be really honest, you know, that's what's ingrained to you. So, so you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't like you know it was a soul searching thing. You know, I think it was drummed into you. You know, be one of those. Right. You know? <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. When I went to university, I have an accent, but I actually grew up in New Zealand. So we moved yeah. here when I was seven. So I'm an immigrant, but from a, a young age. But when I went to Canterbury University, there was a lot of Malaysian people who were studying. And I think there had been a program or something where people were coming over. And um, so Canterbury, there were literally hundreds of Malaysian students. So I had lots of friends who were from Malaysia. And hopefully they cooked you really good food because that's yeah, what Malaysia had- is known for. We had very good food. Yeah, most of them were from uh, from East Malaysia, from from like Kuching yep. and that side, rather yep, than yep. KL. I'm not sure why, but at Canterbury, there seemed to have a lot of people from that side. So there we go. <laughs> cool, awesome, yeah. awesome. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, if you look at New, uh, New Zealand or even, um, you know, we, we're super diverse. You know, we are mm. really a country of immigrants, really. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing because now that our borders are closed, uh, I, I don't feel like I need to go very far to have, you know, Vietnamese as good as Vietnam or Korean as good as Korea or or, or go and have Brazilian food or, you know, Peruvian food, yeah. you know. It's just been, it's so diverse and it's so rich. This melting pot's so rich and I think it's going to create, if we capitalize on that diversity, I think it's going to create a really um, strong future in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, for our children as well. And I think they've really, I mean, not just about the food, but about the culture and the diversity of backgrounds, you know. So you're right about asking people about their backgrounds because that diversity and that melting pot is going to make New Zealand really strong if we, you know, if we can all capitalize on that diversity and and, and work together and, and, you know, build on that because we are all yeah. Kiwis. Yeah, and embrace it and see it as a, a incredible strength that, that actually sets New Zealand apart in a really positive way. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, just talk us through in terms of your career, you mentioned you're working for law firms and then you ended up in-house. Yeah, just a few thoughts on um, how you chose to go down that path of becoming a lawyer. Okay, so so if, if I were to, so, so why when I worked in, I mean, you know, you've done m it's intense. In the big law firms, it's really intense and, and don't regret it, um, you know, because they say, you know, you want to be skillful in something, do 10,000 hours, right? So did, did that and yeah. then um, went in-house for Fisher & Paykel because that that, re- that company really fascinated me. I knew I knew they were not an appliance company and, yeah. and I went after their separation, just shortly after separation. So I was the full, first full-time lawyer they hired. In my time there, watching this high growth company was amazing. But in the health tech sector, I realized how complex and how long and hard it was. 
and 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 at a fish and pickle, um, being a lawyer was really fun because they because I was a first full time lawyer. They really didn't know what lawyers did, so I actually did everything right. and helped <laughs> help with engineering projects and helped manufacturing projects. And it was very global. The company, you know, got got an opportunity to travel to a lot of the offices, you know, and and um, it was a wonderful wonderful time. But also learned a lot and. Um, even though it was it was a big company, health tech's so complex that there were times when there were problems, but money actually solves problems. And obviously they had access to capital. Um, and really during my time there, during the end of my time there, I kind of realized that um, startups in our space, because we're a com- country of 5 million, we've got tremendous science. We've got a huge amount of research institutes and uh, organize, research organizations and universities producing really good quality science. And we Kiwis, they talk about the cliche of number eight fencing wire, but we are innovative. We can do a lot with very little. I mean, um, you know, you look at the great things that have come out of New Zealand, but also the great industries that have come out of New Zealand, you know. So, um, you know, I, I thought about entrepreneurs or scientists or engineers that wanted to create health tech, health technologies and realize that they will be looking to fish and vital healthcare saying, one day I will be the next fish and vital healthcare. Right. Then I realized that, uh, you know, these companies wouldn't even, wouldn't even survive one of the mistakes or the, the problems that fish and pico had encountered. You know, so I would, and, and in my early days helping startups, I always say, you, you can be the next vision of Michael Healthcare, but you you have to be really realistic because unless you have a rich parent that has an open checkbook that will believe and believe for a really long time and it's really patient and will keep writing those checks, yeah. this is going to be a really long, hard road because that's what happened at Fisher and Michael. Mm. So in my time there, I actually uh, discovered that, you know, we we had good science, but good, and we had great innovation, but because of the industry um you know that's the novelty and the great science was was not all it was going to take to build successful companies right then i left fish and pico with the armed with everything i've learned and and had this dream and this vision of actually building the next generation of fish and pico healthcare the next generation of health tech companies but obviously you got to learn how to walk before you run so the first company I went to go and help was a company called Aroa Biosurgery. Uh, I saw them as I was leaving Fish and Bike, I went to see them and they were a startup that basically were using sheep stomach to create uh, tissue repair and tissue regeneration products. They had 3 million in revenue. This was 2015. That 3 million in revenue, they were burning capital. <laughs> as I said, it's capital hungry. I went to see them and it was really interesting because uh, I fell in love and I don't tell people to go and carve their careers or their career choices on, on falling in love, but I fell in love with that company because it embodied everything that I talk, we talk about, about Kiwi ingenuity. Um, when I walked in there and the, the factory, tour, they were washing the sheep's stomach in industrial washing machines. And then they had brothers sewing machines to sew the layers of the sheep's stomach together. You know, and basically this was a company that was using a waste product that we have an abundant of in New Zealand and creating a high value medical product. And so that was what I really liked. And so when I left Fish and Michael Healthcare, I rang Brian Watt, the founder, and I said, I, I'm going to come work for you. To which Brian's like, I don't have a job for you. I said, I don't care. I just want to come and work with you. I want to help you. I'm really inspired by what you're doing. And I think I can help. And he said, I think you can because you've been there before and you understand the sector. And so um, ended up helping them. Um, long, hard journey up and down. Um, you know, beca- they became like family, really. And uh, in that time, there, uh, the, the, the good news is uh, after six years of being there last year, we listed... Um, the company on the ASX uh, at a 220 million valuation. Uh, it's still on its growth trajectory. And that's, that's the thing about health tech companies. They are long and hard. They take a long road. And Raro would have been around for 12 years by the time they, they listed. And mm. um, we listed it and uh, within, because of the pandemic, within 10 minutes of um, listing that company, it, it basically um, doubled. 
So Brian was making his speech and, and we had this wonderful privilege of, I mean, COVID's not a good thing, but because of COVID and they had locked down at that time last July in Sydney, the ASX actually had a, had a person here and they basically built an ASX bell and they brought the bell to the, to the factory, to the premises of Aroa. So everybody, including everyone in the factory, all the engineers, all the scientists, everybody involved in growing this company was actually at the listing when they rang the bell. And so they had the bell and they had the big screen at the back where we were watching the ticker go. And so when Brian was making his speech, we were not really paying attention because the share price doubled in the 10 wow. minutes of him making that speech. And it opened at 85% above market and it's actually managed to stay at that level a year. No, we're almost a year from listing now. And the company's just just start getting started. So that's kind of that's kind of um you know that and then during my time working with Aroa um one of the early investors was Kiokets Ventures, which is a New Zealand seat health tech venture capital fund. And um, the, found, the founding CEO at that time, Maxine, uh, came to share this meeting and she said to me, oh, I've got some free time, come and, come and help me. And because I wanted to help health tech companies, I, I did go and help her. And, and then she transitioned to an executive director role and I became, um, I, I basically helped manage that fund from 2006 late 2016 early 2017 and so have been working with a portfolio of healthy companies uh Kyokets ventures has been around since 2008 it's an impact fund uh and we've invested in 23 companies uh over that time period had uh seen four ipos and um you know and only invest in in, in invest in health you know the health tech deep health tech sector and so, yeah, so, so that's kind of the journey. And then the idea behind Karamit Capital was that when we were funding these companies and we have a data set now, we've realized that the companies that didn't quite make it in the portfolio, they didn't fail because of the science. So we looked back and we, we looked at these companies. They fell because of what I would call the three Cs. The first C being capital, and we've talked about it, it's it's long, hard, patient capital. It's a capital-hungry, you know, and high-risk area. Mm. The second C is capability. You know, you think about health tech has a different business model. And when you talk about impact funds and stuff, it's like that because the consumer of um, medical devices, products, drugs, are not the payers. The payers are, you know, the government or in America, reimbursement insurance companies, you know, that, that's, that's, that's that. So it makes it really long and hard. You can't just market to a consumer. The sales channels are really different in mm. terms of that. And also you need FDA approval. When you talk about COVID and the vaccines have come up really quickly, but you know, it's that, that's, that's the long, you know, that, that's the complex thing. And I learned about the complexity of fish and vital healthcare. And so, you know, mm. you can see that. And then the third C is commercialization strategy. So we go back to number eight, fencing wire. I mean, I think about Otto and Brian. Brian was stripping sheep stomach in his garage, stomachs in his garage, you know, because he was a trained vet when he had this idea. Um, you know, but sometimes the very thing that Kiwi entrepreneurs think, I've got this really novel thing. I've designed it. I can do it in my garage. If you try to do that in health tech and you say, okay, US is my biggest market, if you brought your one product to the US market and try to commercialize it, it's got it's a very noisy ecosystem. People tender by product categories, not by individual products. So you bring your one product in your bag, no matter how novel it is, you're not going, it's going to be really hard for you, no matter how novel. And mm -hmm. I think that's the very thing that makes us invent something in the garage, things that we can just. Nowadays, we can't travel, but, you know, in the past, I'll put this in my bag and somebody's going to buy it. It doesn't work like that in terms of sales channel. I learned that at Fish and Pike, or, you know, the tender by product categories and the tenders are three to five years. So yeah. that's, yeah. that's kind of the complex thing. So the idea behind Caramed is that we've got great signs. We've seen a lot of this com those companies not make it because of the lack of three Cs. And so Caramed's vision is to wrap all that around the good signs and create the next generation of health tech companies in New Zealand. And dare I say, it's going to be long and hard. It's 10 to 20 mm -hmm. years. And I would say, you know, just like um, Peter Jackson built the film industry in New Zealand, it didn't happen overnight. Just like Peter Beck built the space tech industry. Again, it didn't happen overnight. 
we we're, we're trying to catalyze again we're not arrogant to think we're the only people but we're trying to catalyze to build a health tech um, industry because to create successful companies you've got to create an ecosystem mm. and so that's that's kind of where 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 we've come from and really Caramet is a VC it's kind of an uncomfortable term because we're just trying to catalyze and 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 Build, build health tech companies to help this good science become good companies that can provide, can change lives and benefit society because health tech as a sector, if you can create more efficient, more effective, um, you know, healthcare services or, um, you know, health, health technologies can actually really address inequalities, help with mortality, you know, morbidity, mm. you know, quality of life, you know, um, you know, that sort of thing. You know, if you, you think about people with sickness and that sort of thing, you know, if you're all well, you have better quality of life, you can work, you know, it actually can help with alleviating poverty, you know, mm. and, and just more efficient and effective, you know, health technologies. And I think we provided you with a case study of one of the companies that was seeded by the seed fund that, you know, is, is doing really well helping the communities in Northland, you know, so that's that's kind of the vision. It's 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 twofold. It's building, you know, um, globally successful healthy companies from the great science that we have in New Zealand, and mm. and uh, we have the science, but it's all the other wraparound services, and then yeah. obviously, um, you know, creating that impact uh, from from that investment, you know, the the society societal benefits, you know, you know, that change lives and benefit society. Really, yeah. so that's that's for us, and then bringing returns to investors. We don't think that we actually will have to uh, make any concessions on financial returns. Uh, obviously, you know, come from the M and A finance kind of background, and and mm-hmm. you know, we, we we talk about Kiwis being in love with property as an invest investment, and you're doing great stuff. You know, I, I really get so excited about that social housing um, aspect of it, but you know, we we don't have a health tech kind of impact impactful purposeful fun but it kind of totally makes sense you know because mm. you know we've had a legacy of good new zealand health tech companies i mean gsk started from new zealand mm. you know people don't i don't know if many people know that GlaxoSmithKline was actually started as new zealand, new zealand right yeah. it seems to me like the sector you know the health tech sector that you're talking about as well is potentially it's it's so big isn't it because there's so many aspects of our life where we're looking and realizing that technology can be used in, in ways that we hadn't thought of before. Um, is there a particular area or a type of health tech company that would be your ideal company to invest in? Or is it really ranging across the whole thing, you know, from innovations in hospitals, you know, big ticket items or, you know, through to, apps that help people track their weight or you know like it, it's potentially huge isn't it do you have a particular area within that that you're focusing so in on we, or? we invest because we look we're looking at new zealand as how we're trying to capitalize in new zealand so we will take what comes out of our universities so you know we go from biologics drug development biologicals um you know um, med devices digital tech health mm-hmm. tech you know um consumer consumer health tech you know but it still always comes back to you know uh, for us it's deep health tech because of the good science and um, the partners at Caramed we've we've all um, worked in companies and we've all founded companies or are part of founding teams that have been successful in um, you know operationally as well as as investors in the space and um, from an investor perspective we want to invite other people to come along and on this journey, but, and to catalyze something in New Zealand, but we've got the really good science. It's, it's in fact, when we talk to US Australian investors, it's low hanging fruit for us, because if you think about it, there's not many people investing in the health tech space because it's so complex, mm. you know, the deep health tech stuff, you know? So again, we have really, really good assets in New Zealand. And I, I we're starting to talk to people who are actually scouting in New Zealand because they think our assets are really cheap. But we really want to build a sector. So we want Kiwis actually investing in Kiwi assets and keeping the jobs and creating the jobs. And, and, you know, I mean, what we do in health tech obviously will have a global impact. 
you know, if you, you, you create, you know, something that, you know, a, a device or, you know, whatever, what Ottawa is doing their first markets in the US, you know, and, and even with the sheep stomach, the impact that they've had is that competitive products are twice the price of, of the product. So th there is an accessibility story there as well with using the sheep for stomach and it actually performs really, really well. So, you know, so that's that's what we can do out of little New Zealand in our little niche, just like Fisher and Paykel. It's a little niche um, that that you do really really well, and you take it global. You know, you do one thing really really well, and so we we have pockets of innovation in different different areas of health tech in New Zealand, and we will look at all of those really because for us it's about New Zealand Inc. Yeah, and it's about building the, the you know the next generation of globally successful health tech companies. Yeah. And and, and yeah. we've been quite surprised. We launched about three months ago. And we've been quite surprised that we've had huge ecosystem players that have um, called us and want, want to be involved or want to help us because they, you know, because again, as Kiwis, it's it's, it's a small country. Mm. So, you know, it's been, it's been really exciting. Yeah. And I'm, sh I'm not sure how to phrase this question, but I'm just curious, um, you know, because you're talking about health, you're talking, you know, that affects all of us, right? We, yes. we all know someone who's had cancer or been through something that's not, that's not good, that health is affected. You know, some of these innovations potentially are life changing, you know, they would, they would have transformative effects, you know, if you took some of the things to Africa or some third world country, or even back to your home village, right? <laughs> you know, and, yep. and, and rolled some of these things out, they would actually help people in their lives, you know, in a really tangible way. But at the same time, you've got that balance between this is a business and you want to make money. Do you ever feel a tension there between we just want to help the people with this amazing new technology um, and the we've got to return to shareholders certain levels of profit or investment. Is that something that you ever feel or yeah, how do you, how do you reconcile that? Because, um, you know, it, it, the, the, so we've always grappled with the do good or make money. We don't think they're mutually exclusive. So mm -hmm. I'll paint you a picture because we, we're now building our impact, impact framework and tying that to our investment process for every part of our investment process, it was not very hard to overlay it because a lot of health tech that don't make it is because they don't talk to the beneficiaries and the beneficiaries are patients, but also beneficiaries are actually the clinicians that actually are the specialists that actually use the tech. So if you don't talk about the impact or how a tech is going to integrate into your workflow, so you can build something out of isolation that, a clinician can't use or measures the wrong thing or, you know, it doesn't produce the kind of outcome they want or it doesn't help them or it makes uh, an operation longer, which is higher risk, you know. So having to actually do that beneficiary piece at the beginning for impact actually makes good business sense too mm. because you don't want to fund something that you build that nobody wants to use that has no impact. So actually injecting that impact framework and measurement uh, into our in a, into the beginning of our process actually it just makes sense. It makes good business sense. So we think that you can do good and make money and have fun at the same time too. I'm just adding that in. So <laughs> so you know like like the the impact story that I shared with you, um, you know it's it's a system that makes makes provides data accessibility. And it makes it more efficient and effective to, to be able to see the data and the outcomes so that then you can actually go to public funders to get funding for the right kind of, you know, where, where there were siloed systems or many systems out of different agencies, multi-agencies. And then now there is a system that basically warehouses and consolidates information for each whanau um, so that you can high in, you know, whether it's Oranga Tamariki or mental health or corrections or whatever else, the multi-agency data for, it's not just community care, but also social services. They all tie in. The whole social services and healthcare and well-being community, it's all tied in. And when you have one system that you can then track and it's whanau-centric as opposed to agency-centric and you get all that data, the power of that data for you to be able to measure um, activities, funding, and impact and outcomes, that, that's powerful. Mm. But there was, there was, that started out as a recording of, because people were doing things in 
spreadsheets or Excel spreadsheets or using systems that are not, you know, not fully integrated and having a fully integrated system that can actually provide that level of reporting can actually already improve health and well-being straight mm. away. So that, that again is an example. So I don't know. And then because of that, you get, you get adoption, right? Because people mm. want to use it. So then you make money. So I don't know if do good and make money is a separate thing. I don't think it is. I don't believe it is at all. And that's what we've been doing because we've kind of, one of my partners was, you know, Maxine, who's the founding CEO of Cure Kids Ventures. I mean, we've kind of, she's she's done an impact fund for a really long time and grappled with the do good, make money. And mm. um, it, you, you, it's it's mutually exclusive. And I think you, you talked about this paradigm shift mm. in, in investors idea of purposeful impact investment the only thing is obviously long-time horizons which is typical of health tech you know looking at the future and legacy as opposed to purely can you because I have people who say can you get me 10x in five years I say no go and invest in a SaaS business (laughs) because we're not going to promise you those kinds of returns in five years but what we can promise you is it take, it's long and hard, but when you protect the IP and you get returns, the returns are more certain because the very barriers to entry that you have um, overcome are the barriers to, uh, to competition. So the mm. returns are more certain and the returns are higher. Mm. But it's a long, hard road and it's high risk. Yeah. But, you know, so yeah, that's no. why we have to wrap around the three Cs as Caramet. We want to provide the other three Cs, not just the capital you know, because we've all executed in this area before and, and seen what works. So, so that's yeah. what we're trying to do. I think, I think, um, yeah, so, so it, it, there, there is no pressure. They align, mm. they align. I, I think you talked about the same thing with social housing, you know, they, it, it kind of neatly aligns in our sector. Mm. Um, and, and it's exciting because New Zealand has never had a specialized deep health tech fund that, you know, that, that provides that as an alternative uh, for, investors impact investors foundations and people who want to actually invest in this space so you know for us it's really exciting yeah no that's really good i i like your answer i think you're right and i think that's part of this new paradigm of thinking that in the olden times we would have said well if you want to do good you start a charity if you want to make money you start a business but actually you can weave both together um, I guess it, it then just becomes a balance to some extent, mm-hmm. not in you, the context you're talking about, but when I think about, you know, somebody who can't access medical care or can't access a certain drug because they're, they, they don't have the choice that we talked about at the beginning, they don't have the choice in the form of money to be able to afford it. It's a, it's a really a different question, um, but it's a fascinating one to me. You know, how do we ensure that rather than people dying of things that they could be cured of that we actually make things accessible um, if if it's within our means to do so but I agree with you the new paradigm of thinking has to be that that business can actually do good as well as make money so that it's sustainable rather than the old paradigm of we we're just about making money because and and basically we'll sell ourselves to whoever the highest buyer is you know there has to be more to it than that going forward yeah and back to back to talking about communities in africa and and that accessing um health tech a lot of uh, digital tech that we invest at the moment creates accessibility because it's ai driven diagnosis diagnosis where there may not be um the specialists that are available um you know, uh, yeah. that, that sort of thing, you know, um, which, which again, and things that enhance productivity or things that are less manual that, that can be used, you know, you know, uh, and, and just, you know, just, just access to, to that kind of um, diagnostic tools or, and we look, we look at those, those things, you know, it's not about just, oh, well, let's just make, um, you know, make it better for people who can afford it. Just I'm yeah. being really honest, right? You know, it's it's also things that can lower healthcare costs, enhance productivity of equipment, um, you know, access in remote areas where you know they may not have. And that's what I talk about more efficient and effective health technology solutions. Um, you know, and we were looking at a lot of things that can 
can do that. I mean, I'll give you another example. There's a company that uh, we invested in uh, that basically helps with kids' eyesight problems, you know, uh, and, and, and traditionally kids have to be able to read charts and that sort of thing to be able to, because you don't know whether kids can't read a chart because they don't actually recognize the alphabets or whether they're because they've got an eyesight problem. But there, there is this AI thing that, that is a system coming out of University of Auckland that we invested in that basically can do it in a one second test um, that basically is, is objective, but you just stare on a computer screen and it can do a reading. So think about how that could actually help with education. Again, people don't make the link, but how you can actually, if you can diagnose that really early, in remote areas without having to, and also for really, really young children, think about the impact in terms of educational outcomes, mm. you know? And so, so, so that, that's kind of an example of, of, you know, that's an example we uh, look at things that can, with long waiting lists, in, uh, you know, of, of people with diabetes and stuff like that, and AI that can actually um, detect that, you know, quicker and, and shorten the waiting lists, you know, it's just things like that, you know? Um, yeah, well, that's where it would be incredibly satisfying to do what you're doing, I think, because you'd get to see these companies that are at the beginnings and they're using washing, washing machines in their garage, you know, to process the, the sheep's mm-hmm. stomachs and then and then ramping it up to the potential. I interviewed somebody named Professor Anthony Butler from Mars Bioimaging down here in Christchurch. Yes. Yes. And, you know, you, you look at that technology like color x-rays. What yes. would that mean if, if you had a color x-ray that could pick up tumors or pick up other things within a person's scan um you know it's it's just revolutionary potentially and when i was talking to him i'll put a link in the in the show notes to this because it's a great conversation and we were imagining what will a hospital look like in 50 years or 100 years imagine how different it will be you know in terms of personalized healthcare. you know that the, the, the assessments that will be done will just be so from We'll, you and I will will look like we were in the Stone Age compared to the potential that technology has to actually advance this whole area of healthcare. Yeah, and 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 just just a lot of the new 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 tech. It, it's very exciting because of the impact, and that's why I'm like, you can't talk about health technologies and not talk about impact. That that is the do good and yeah. make money aspect. Even when I said about Aroa you know, their products are so accessible where it wasn't. And people have been using inferior um, meshes that don't work uh, in surgery because uh, using a biologics, uh, the, the other alternative is actually sheep's, uh, no, actually pig skin or human cadaver. And, and, you know, and, and that's hugely expensive versus the sheep stomach that actually performs better. And it's 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 a waste product in New Zealand. You know, awful it is. You know, it is awful. You know, so and to make that into high value medical product, but also create accessibility to that, and it becomes you know a superior product that can be accessible because the price point is no longer, you know. So so that that again is is you know, is 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 the goal. that's hugely satisfying. And again, that you measure that sort of impact. Other than, of course, the impact of the life saves and the life change and the heart to heal wounds that us and how this product performs superior, it's superior performance, you know, it's, it, it does that too, you know, so that's, that's kind of, um, you know, I, I mean, I could talk all day about all the exciting tech that we're seeing and how, you know, it can actually help, um, you know, we, we've invested in companies where, you know, if you live remotely and you can't get physiotherapy, that you can do it online virtual you can get that care you know that, that sort of thing and then you can get your physio you know directing your exercise but you know charting how you do it you know and if you've got strokes or you know if you have a stroke it's hard enough for you to get in the car or, you know but then if you live remotely you can still access that healthcare. i mean all that stuff with telehealth you know um it's just exciting and i think it's accelerating with this ai it, it's just totally accelerating yeah i mean they're, they're great, great tech out in New Zealand. I mean, there's a company in Christchurch that basically does um, 3D printing of hip replacements. So you can actually get a customized hip that is to your anatomy. Mm. You have to buy an off-the-shelf hip now. They do 3D printing. They can get a 3D printer. Yeah. It's a really clever tech that comes out of And Mars, obviously what Mars has been doing, you know, for many years. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then obviously Volpara in Wellington is a New Zealand company. It's listed on the ASX. 
they basically do very, they use AI and they do very, very early detection of breast cancer, saves lives. Mm. Well, that's the exciting thing. I mean, that's why I can see why this would be an area to leave M&A lawyer role behind to get into this because, you know, you're, you're actually coming in, building up an ecosystem, like you say, and then an ecosystem, hopefully, that can support each other and, and collectively grow up, but having then the potential for so much impact, um, you know, not just in New Zealand as a, you know, incubation nation that some of these technologies could then go offshore and have vast impacts elsewhere as well. So it's pretty cool. Yep. Yep. So I hope that, um, you know, all the sacrifice of my parents and my grandparents, that they will be proud of what, what we're trying to do here for New Zealand, my new adopted land, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I like to start the interviews with that sort of yeah. finding about a person's background and where they're from, because it does kind of weave in then and you can kind of see a person in their drive and why they do what they do. And um, what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put some links to things. So just drop yep. me an email with anything, case studies or whatever you'd like to share. Um, so yep. people listening, be sure to look in the show notes. There's lots of links there. Um, but yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. If people are interested, we'll put your website and people can reach out if they want to know more. Um, but I, I really enjoyed hearing that that background. And we kind of went on a tangent, I know, talking about immigrants and, and yep, I know uh, and diversity. Yeah, but I, I really that's why I do the podcast. I don't want to just talk about one thing. You know, we can we can have these deep diving conversations that touch across all different types of parts of our lives. But thanks, because, for, thanks for doing that, because, you know, it kind of helps me cement the purpose of what we're trying to do for New Zealand because of the opportunities we have and the opportunities I have been given by New Zealand. I'm not sitting here as a victim. I'm sitting here going, thank you, New Zealand. And this is what I would like to do. Mm -hmm. Even if it's going to take 20 years, this is what we would like to do to give back to New Zealand uh, Mm -hmm. to create a health tech sector because that's all I know how to do. And that's all I know how to do to thank the country that adopted me and given, given me all these opportunities. Yeah, no, I love that. It's great. And that's come through the interview. So thank you for sharing that part of your story as well. Um, yeah, thanks, yeah. thanks for having me on. And thanks for, you know, the way you've unpicked it for me. It's kind <laughs> no of a problem. new insight, actually, you know. <laughs> oh, good. Well, actually, sometimes guests do write to me later and say, I hadn't thought through the influence of my grandparents on what I do today. But it's a good reminder, because sometimes we do get a little bit too caught up you know, like when we started the interview, you were jumping ahead to Fisher and Paikova and then I did this, but actually slow it down a little bit, set the grounding of, you know, my grandfather was an immigrant from China to Malaysia and got on the boat with nothing. And then think through, oh, how does that influence me today in this new country of New Zealand and what I do and the impact I'm seeking to have? I think it's important to draw those connections and also that people listening now will think back in their life and go, oh, I have a source of inspiration as well. And, and that's important. I think it's good to do that. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing that came out is that we, the opportunity and the choice we have, mm. you know, that a lot of people don't. And, and you know, that, that's why we want to create this impact. And that's why we want to give back as well. You know? yeah. And I think back to my grandmother, you know, and that's how she'd be proud because she never got the opportunities to you know, and we do, you know, we, we, we do, and we have to make the best. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Carolyn. I know for me, there were several things that stood out. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget that there's lots more interviews in the back catalog. So you might want to check them out and also have a look at theseeds.nz, which is the website where there's heaps more information. Until next time. Mm-hmm.